In cities around the world, police are able to watch what's going on in the streets constantly through extensive networks of cameras. They can use them to gather evidence of crimes that have been committed, and they can monitor live to help deploy officers to incidents as they unfold, all day, any day. Not in San Francisco, from what our reporting shows. Why not? I'm Laura Wenis. Last week, we found out that San Francisco's new pilot program to make it easier for police to request live monitoring access of private camera networks hasn't been a smash hit. Police have not given any indication that they've used it. This week, we're asking, if they did, would trading a little privacy in hopes of addressing drug dealing, violent crime, and theft be worth it? From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. San Francisco has experimented with cameras for more than a decade, and privacy advocates have opposed them from the beginning. The ACLU has been a vocal critic of a legislative experiment approved last fall that lowers the barriers to police access to networks of cameras not owned by the city. Their concern is that cameras held up as violence prevention or crime-fighting tools don't work, and will actually be used to surveil people engaging in political demonstrations, or to track specific individuals who are going about their daily lives. Here's Nicole Ozer, the Technology and Civil Liberties Director at the ACLU of Northern California. The new surveillance powers that the SFPD now temporarily have for a 15-month period are extremely powerful and really dangerous in terms of the rights and safety of people in San Francisco. You know, it's it's really important to understand just what these powers are and what the police can actually do with them. I mean, they can use hundreds of, of private cameras throughout the city to spy on constitutionally protected speech. What Ozer is referring to here is past instances in which SFPD has accessed private camera networks live. The Union Square Business Improvement District operates one such camera network, and back in 2020, the San Francisco Police Department requested access during demonstrations against the police murder of George Floyd. They got it. The ACLU and a privacy group called the Electronic Frontier Foundation unsuccessfully sued the city over that. Is it happening again in places where pride and other political protests are happening? And what's the real impact on the community. She says this is dangerous to people's liberty and safety. What's recorded in San Francisco doesn't need to stay in San Francisco. You know, video footage that could reveal that we're engaging in political protests, that we're seeking an abortion, or we're assisting, you know, undocumented community members who need help is allowed to be sent to other state agencies. And then they can also send that footage to out-of-state and federal agencies. And, you know, these concerns really aren't hypothetical. You know, we already saw how local license plate reader footage that was collected in Bay Area communities was being shared with ICE and really used to power Trump's deportation machine. During the George Floyd protests where the SFPD asked for and was granted access to the Union Square camera network, there was also a request from Homeland Security. This is according to documents pulled by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which first revealed the police access. It's unclear whether Homeland Security access was granted or why the department wanted it. Brian Hofer says you don't have to assume law enforcement wants to share data with other agencies 
to believe it will happen. Sometimes it's just an innocent oversight. Hofer is executive director of the Oakland-based civil liberties group Secure Justice. I've worked with five police chiefs in sanctuary cities that all use vigilance solutions, license plate reader services. And because vigilance program is opt out, meaning if you don't opt out, all your data is accessible to these third parties. Well, they never turned off that access. So I saw them actually querying their database. It wasn't that the chief intentionally did that. They just didn't understand the tech. They had access. They exposed all this data. Real people get put into harm's way. Hofer says we have to remember that individual surveillance technologies don't exist in a vacuum. SFPD, for example, has more than 40 types of surveillance technologies in its inventory, including license plate readers, cell tower data mappers, and software to decrypt the contents of cell phones and computers. And that's to say nothing of all the data that our own apps and browsers collect about us. I think this is the other big mistake both the media and the average layperson makes, because they just don't live and breathe this stuff. You can't look at these systems in isolation. We live in a world filled with both public and private surveillance technology and data mining. All of that is ongoing, you know, and the police can access all of that. So every single time we allow one more system or we increase the scope of that existing system, that degree of concern increases. The privacy impact increases. The potential for civil liberties harm increases. You know, it might not be fatal one by one, but the totality of all that surveillance and data being collected and mined by folks creates a problem. Could that be worth it to prevent egregious violent crime or offer some relief from the plague of car break-ins, for example? Not for either of the two privacy advocates I spoke to. Because they say cameras don't meaningfully prevent or decrease crime. I suggested to Hofer that we can have a separate discussion about whether or not going after drug dealers is the most effective way to combat the fentanyl overdose crisis. But cameras might at least work to identify the dealers. I don't have a problem with somebody holding that opinion. But of course, my question to you would be, can you show me any data to support that your theory is true? And what you just said at the beginning of that line of questioning, I disagree with when you're saying, you know, we can separately discuss whether targeting drug dealers is, you know, the best use. No, that needs to be the same conversation. You're saying that the use of this technology will produce X results. Well, when that doesn't happen, your justification fails. You haven't justified the use of this. I think most people, you know, I think I'm in the mainstream when I say I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of privacy for real public safety success, right? Some of our day, right, I walk around you know, Oakland, San Francisco, I get picked up on these cameras all the time. I drive through my license plate readers being scanned. I'm not suing everybody left and right. My own personal injury, you know, it hasn't risen to the level to where, you know, I'm going to go out and go litigate against everybody, right? So I've accepted a certain amount of infringement upon my, you know, rights of privacy. But when the technology doesn't work, and you're still impacting my privacy, you're still harvesting data on me, I have a strong objection to that. Still, proponents say cameras are valuable for the evidence that they can gather, and they're hopeful cameras could be used in new ways. One nonprofit leader in the Tenderloin says his organization just installed a sophisticated camera system last year. This is not about law and order (laughs) on everything. It is just like, can we change the situation in the Tenderloin? And I think cameras can play a role. More on that after a break. 
Critics of surveillance expansion say there isn't evidence that, on the whole, cameras actually reduce crime in cities. And they warn that surveillance overreach can happen even unintentionally. But for Nils Banke, CEO of the St. Anthony Foundation in the Tenderloin, the evidence cameras can capture was a good reason to install a brand new system last year. I laid out some of the privacy advocates' concerns to Banke. Yeah, they're right. I mean, of course there's a concern. But what do we ultimately need to achieve and which direction do we want to lean? And this is not about law and order on everything. It is just like, can we change the situation in the Tenderloin? And I think cameras can play a role. St. Anthony's serves free food in its dining room and offers other services for people experiencing homelessness and poverty or who have substance abuse disorders. Banky says the cameras serve both to capture evidence of crimes or threats against staff and to protect staff if they're falsely accused of mistreatment by a guest. But he's primarily worried about the crime that happens just outside the foundation. Drug dealing, but also some shootings and other violent attacks. You got to draw the line somewhere, absolutely. But the question is where. And we sometimes, as a city, so concerned to never harm anybody that we end up harming everybody. That is the question that has come to my mind. The system St. Anthony's just installed will add more cameras to a neighborhood that's getting filmed a lot. Last week, we told you about a camera network in the Tenderloin that blockchain entrepreneur and camera benefactor Chris Larson helped fund. It covers 60% of the neighborhood, and the plan is to extend that to 100%. The people who primarily operate those cameras say they're fielding a ton of requests for footage. Since 2016, we've had over 1,300 requests that we've been processing through. This is someone who helps manage the camera system for the Tenderloin Community Benefit District. Overall, on an annual basis, it's about 10% of the overall incidences in the Tenderloin that we are contributing footage to the overall dispositions that we're working on. We're not naming these camera experts because they've been harassed and threatened by people who associate them with the cameras. Our biggest number of requesters now are civilians who live in the neighborhood because they're finding out about it and they know and they submit requests. And that's what I'm excited about, where civilians know about it and they're able to tap into it because if someone hits your car and run and no one's injured, the police will not show up. You can't tell anything to your insurer without footage. So that's what we provide. And same thing for your car getting broken into, if something valuable was stolen. The camera system is what helps. SFPD will not be able to help you with your insurance. So cameras have been providing evidence of crimes. Do they lower crime? Studies and meta-studies generally show that cameras can be effective in closed, specific areas like parking lots and garages, mostly to reduce thefts. Researchers haven't found evidence that they reduce violent crime. And several studies show cameras aren't a good intervention on their own. Rather, they should be combined with other strategies, like improved lighting. There are a few different ways to use cameras. One is as a deterrent. Make the cameras very obvious and put people on notice they're being filmed, in hopes that someone with criminal intent has second thoughts. Another is investigative. Don't make the cameras extremely obvious to prevent tampering, but make them really high quality to collect the best possible evidence. Use that to help identify people of interest, to convict guilty suspects, or as proof to exonerate innocent ones. There seems to be general agreement that cameras can gather useful evidence to investigate crimes. But nothing's a silver bullet. One person I talked to was especially wary of thinking about cameras as a panacea. His name is Steve Keith, and he admits to a certain bias. 
He is a former SFPD foot patrol officer. For him, personal connection was always paramount in police work. The camera is a witness. The implication is that it's an unimpeachable witness. It's unbiased. Here it is. You know, this is what the camera saw. And that way you don't have any intimidation of a witness. It's just simply here. This is the person who committed the crime. And unfortunately, more often than not, at least in my experience from many years ago, the camera gave us the time and date that a crime occurred. Very rarely did it give us an identification. Like, very, very rarely did, did, were we able to go, oh, I know exactly who that is. Because, like I said, if it wasn't the quality of the equipment in place, sometimes it's just the position of the camera wasn't conducive to getting a good identification or just simply somebody wearing a, a hoodie or a ball cap or something. Keep in mind, law enforcement in this city is banned from using facial recognition technology to identify suspects. But beyond investigation, Keith isn't sure that cameras are an effective deterrent either. His experience says nothing has more of an effect on crime than the weather. And as far as being an unimpeachable witness, he's not convinced. Sometimes there are practical hurdles that make a camera unreliable, like the time and date stamp being totally off. But Keith says they're just never going to compete with a human being. There's the limited field of view of a camera. Most field of views of a camera is narrower than the human eye. And then, of course, you run into issues of focus. Like, you know, why did I focus over by that door instead of the light post? Was there something in the air? Did I hear something? Did I smell something? And the camera might not be able to pick up what I just saw by kind of a quick glance over my right shoulder. The camera is not going to see that. The actual limitations of the view of a camera is, is difficult to discern from the point of view of someone who's just viewed it. He doesn't think they're unbiased either. A surveillance system that's in place by whether it's government or private, there was bias in place because they decided this was a place that they needed to have surveillance and what factors were in place for them to make that decision. But that's when you have just a single camera. I relayed something that camera benefactor Chris Larson had said to me previously to Steve Keith. These new camera networks are highly sophisticated, and because it's more than one, they can essentially track a suspect down the street until they reveal themselves, or their associates, or their car. But Keith says humans are adaptable, and criminals will adapt to this too. The relationship between law enforcement and the criminal element has always been cat and mouse. Somebody's going to get caught, absolutely. And then everyone else figures it out like, well, we know not to do that again, or we need to change our tactics. Let's say you use all the different methods of cameras at once. Highly visible ones as deterrents, more discreet ones to capture evidence, and networks that can be monitored live to deploy officers anywhere when something starts going wrong. Chicago offers a good case study. That city has thousands of cameras. Different types were installed over the years, making up different generations. The first-gen cameras were highly visible, with bright CPD branding, bulletproof cases, and even lights on top. The Chicago PD claims to have dramatically reduced drug dealing and crime more generally with its camera programs. One researcher agreed, seeing reductions in crime hotspots, though the effects lessened farther away from the cameras. But that city also has a bigger overall strategy, with other interventions. For example, 
The Chicago Police Department did see a displacement effect in drug dealing from its cameras. Dealers moved to nearby streets that were out of view. So the department sent police to ramp up in-person enforcement in those out-of-view streets. Will SFPD do the same now that it has expanded access to private cameras, and especially live monitoring? Or use existing city department cameras? We don't know because they didn't respond to any of our inquiries. But given the department has often said it's so severely understaffed, it seems unlikely being able to monitor would help. Here's Steve Keith again, the former beat cop. That really depends heavily on whether or not there are personnel that's available to deploy at the time. And it also takes personnel to conduct the live monitoring. And so then that's somebody who's going to require a certain level of training and access. So that's just not an intern, you know, it's somebody who's going to require a certain level of training that's going to increase their budget. And it's also, I would imagine if anything would be implemented early on, they would initially be police officers. Then that's a police officer that's not on patrol. And I I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. I passed that reasoning on to Nils Banke, the CEO of St. Anthony's in the Tenderloin. I am not sure that is a very satisfactory reaction. Like, I mean, we're talking not like shoplifting or something. We're talking about like violent crime and it's like drug dealing every day and it's predictable. In fact, he's trying to get this kind of collaboration going. He says while the cameras alone may not be a deterrent, What could really help is if SFPD accessed them live to direct their officers. And he's talked to police about this. The people work in shifts. It's pretty clear who, like, their supervisors are. And if you just see that pattern and they see that something is happening, that would allow them to dispatch officers right at the time that the crime happens. And we would be able to provide evidence as well. So have you offered this to the SFPD? Yes, We're in active discussions with them. Have they come and done it? Not yet. (laughs) But they're very much invited to be doing that. He says it's still a new process, so it remains to be seen how exactly this could work. Understaffing could also be a reason why we're talking about how much access SFPD has to private cameras, even though the city has tons of cameras of its own, possibly tens of thousands across its various departments. I have not been able to figure out from those departments or from SFPD whether they access other government-owned cameras. In fact, those city-owned cameras don't seem to get discussed much at all. I wondered out loud why that is to Brian Hofer from Secure Justice. I don't know if you were paying attention to our big fight in Oakland over license plate readers last fall. The mayor came out and said, we need to access this new technology and the, the meanies at the Privacy Commission won't let us. We've had license plate readers since 2008. Hofer says it's politically expedient for elected leaders to support surveillance technologies because they're relatively inexpensive and often popular with voters who are angry over crime. But even in San Francisco, with its ubiquitous concerns about property crime, cameras don't always win people over. In 2021, the Castro Community Benefit District, which had originally requested a grant for a camera network and gotten an offer for it from Larson's foundation, ended up rejecting the money after all. Neighbors and political groups caught wind of the idea and mounted an opposition campaign. A few contentious meetings later, the idea was scrapped. So there is some pushback on expanding surveillance capabilities. The concerns that people I talked to for this story raised are these. To really trust a surveillance system won't be abused or accidentally misused, the public has to fully trust everyone operating it. 
and it has to be worth the cost to privacy by being effective at improving public safety. Do San Francisco's systems meet that bar? You tell us. We want to hear from you. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. So we want to know what you think of the solutions we're investigating. Beyond that, do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City, we'll talk with a guy who, well, fixes city problems. He's building bridges between municipal governments and academia to scientifically study how well certain interventions work. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.